morning, everyone. So for those of you who haven't been able to be here uh, through the year or recently, uh, I've been doing a series of lessons through Titus, just section by section through the year once a month, to teach through the whole book through the year. And we're in uh, Titus chapter 2, verses 6 through 8 this morning. Uh, Like Jason said, the instructions given to young men. Uh, These lessons are all very challenging and convicting because they're very personal in their nature. Uh, We've looked at what God has intended for the church in terms of overseers in chapter 1, how we're all to be sound in faith, older men, older women, younger, younger women, and also younger men now. And all of these lessons are very personal. Uh, We're not going to read this, but in chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, the grace of God, kind of like what John said when he was reading that scripture in Luke chapter 12, to him who's been given much, all the more will be required. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. And with this grace that God has given us, there is a sense of responsibility, that we are to become a certain kind of people. It's not just that we are to do certain things, but we are to be a certain kind of people. So in Titus chapter 2, verse 6, where we're going to be, this is what is sound. So in verse 1, he says, speak the things fitting for sound doctrine, which would be like healthy doctrine. And healthy doctrine makes us spiritually well. So each one of these verses talks about what it means to be a spiritually healthy older man a spiritually healthy older woman, younger woman, and now younger man. I think a lot of us here fit this category. Um, I'm really not sure like what age exactly ends being a young man. Uh, I think a few of us are definitely past that. A few of us are kind of on the border between young and old. Some of us are definitely still in, still in our youth. Um, but I'm going to go ahead and read Titus chapter 2, verses 6 through 8 again, and then we'll talk more about it after reading that section again. Likewise, urge the young men to be sensible. In all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity in doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. So kind of the interesting thing about this section dedicated to young men is there's actually only one quality that is given to young men to strive to learn and grow in and apply The rest of it at the end of chapter, uh, or at the end of, well, verse 7 and 8. Verse 7 and 8 is all told to Titus to be an example. The implication seems to be that Titus also was a young man. But in verse 6, this is the only quality that is to be instructed to young men or urged to young men. And that is to be sensible. So there's something about being sensible that is critical. And I would even say all-encompassing. That if a, young, if a young man can just learn to be sensible, that will leak into every other area of their life and their relationship with God. If they can just get this one thing mastered, to be sensible, right? Um, so young men are to be sensible. And you've noticed on the board, um, well, for those of you who are visiting, I have Spanish on the board. There's someone who comes to the church regularly who does not speak English. He only speaks Spanish, but he was not able to make it this morning. Suffice it to say, I prepare for him to be here, so you'll just have to ignore the Spanish on the board. 
But you'll notice on the board I have exclamation point on being sensible. Again, this is something that young men particularly need to be especially focused on. And now remember, if you've been able to be, be here, in Titus chapter 1, overseers were told to be sensible. Older men in Titus chapter 2 are told to be sensible. Older women are to teach younger women to be sensible. And now younger men are to be sensible. So I hope this is a word that's been on your mind. And I hope that it's able to ring in your mind and stay in your mind as much as it has mine. This idea of being sensible is something we all need to be learning to apply. And so I want to define this again briefly. Your Bible might say sober-minded or self-controlled instead of the word sensible. The reason for that is the Greek word is a little open to defining differently. But it's a compound word, meaning that it's two words made, made into one. It literally means healthy or sound, healthy-minded. And the word for minded particularly refers to the faculty of the mind pertaining to decisions and judgments. So it's like being able to make good judgments, having a healthy, godly ability to exercise wisdom, discretion, prudence. So really it's the idea of learning to be wise and learning to live in wisdom. And I've kind of changed a little bit from uh, age and gender, uh, how I would urge and define this. So here's how I've just defined this a little bit on the board for young men. Think what this would mean for young men to be sensible is to develop values that are rooted in the Lord rather than in myself or values that are rooted in the world and the world's values or in the immediate, the temporary, rather than in the eternal and the lasting, right? Uh, and I think it's ironic. So if you look at verse 6, Titus is told to urge this to young men. And I would say uh, what it means to be a young man may start fairly early. And so these, this may be, for instance, young men who are still in their parents' household. Why is this important? How vulnerable are people who are growing up in their teenage years? To temptation, to worldly thinking, becoming addicted to worldly pleasure, adapting worldly values. So in my short life, I've seen it as something very ironic that at times in a person's life when they may be most vulnerable and most need help and urging and hands-on from the church community is oftentimes when they are most neglected and most ignored. Um, I mentioned last month that with older women, just because you regret your experiences in your life doesn't mean that you're not equipped to give counsel. Um, I'm going to be speaking from a perspective of regret uh, for this lesson to try to give counsel in that way. Um, I had Christian parents. Uh, there was a lot of turmoil uh, when I was growing up. My dad did fall away from the faith when I was 10 years old and had been becoming very bitter uh, for years before that. Um, he repented a few years after that. Um, but in my youth, that, that turmoil and a lot of the things that were happening in the household, um, I kind of utilized the turmoil of my household to check out with my faith and my relationship with God. 
So looking back, uh, I see that I was not sensible in the way that I developed my life. And what I see with myself is the development of the youth, choices that are made in youth, and I see this just across the board, really sets a foundation for the rest of your life. So although I am very thankful that God is able to redeem uh, my life and anybody's life who turns to him and can cause his grace to abound all the more where sin abounded before and create very good, strong convictions when someone has immersed themselves in sin and come out of it. Despite all of that and how thankful I am for that, I fully, deeply regret uh, every moment that I spent neglecting my relationship with God and still see ripple effect consequences uh, that I constantly have to be aware of and fight against um, because of decisions that I made in my youth. Uh, so I do want to talk about that. But again, with urging young men, um, something that I think is important in past congregations I've been with, I have tried to have more one-on-one -on -one personal studies with teenage young men who are still in their parents' households. Uh, I look back, for instance, on my youth, and it, I don't mean this as a judgment against anyone. It's just something I've tried to personally observe and learn from. But when I was in my parents' household, I was uh, a Christian through my teenage years. I attended all the assemblies. I would lead prayers. I would lead the Lord's Supper. Uh, I would give Wednesday night invitation talks. And I was worldly. My heart was deeply invested into the world. I had no personal relationship with God. I believed in God. I think I believed maybe correct doctrinal things, at least in some very shallow way. Uh, but outside of assemblies, I didn't think much about God. I didn't read my Bible on my own at all. I had no personal prayer life whatsoever. And ultimately, the situation I was in, I was a ticking time bomb. As soon as I left my parents' household, it was over. Any boundaries that I had were so shallow and superficial things that I was exposed to away from the safety of home, even when I would maybe for a short period have some sense of that's wrong, I don't want to do that, very quickly broke down because the barriers that I had, the convictions I had were so shallow, it did not take very long for Satan to, bake, to break through the whitewashed walls that I had set up. Um, and the, the fall from there was catastrophic. Anyway, not only do we need to be careful to recognize the need to put our hands into the lives of youth, um, but we need to have expectations. Uh, too often, there are no expectations for people growing up in Christian households. They come to church, everything must be okay. You know, surely they're being exposed to Bible teaching, their parents are Christians, surely they're being equipped enough. Uh, we need to be praying for people growing up with Christian parents. We need to be hands-on. Uh, we cannot make the mistake of assuming someone's heart is rooted in the Lord simply because they are bodily present and being exposed to the right things. There is, a, there is a unique danger to growing up with Christian parents. There is a danger to growing up with Christian parents where what should be winning the ultimate eternal lottery can become something that cultivates a uniquely hardened heart. And so we have to be very careful to be very aware of those things. Titus was told to urge this I think not just from the pulpit, but in developing personal relationships and in encouraging others to develop those relationships as well. So young men are to be sensible at a time in their lives where it's very easy to just hoard in worldly values, even in a place like Crete, which you remember from chapter one, 
Paul refers to Crete as a horribly worldly, aggressively ungodly place. And yet in Crete, young men could still in that culture learn to be sensible. But it would require, again, being deliberate and really cultivating a kingdom culture among the brethren. I want to think about some passages that I think illustrate this and just detail this a little bit more. I want to spend a little more time on being sensible since uh, it is literally the one quality that is emphasized to learn outside of an example being emphasized for Titus. Turn to Proverbs chapter 4. And again, I want to talk about these things from a perspective of regret and just some things that I've learned looking back on my life and how I I squandered uh, the opportunity to just really thrive in my relationship with God and instead uh, chose to indulge in as much personal pleasure and take refuge in the world as I could. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 20. Uh, Throughout this section of Proverbs, you'll notice it even at the beginning of the chapters. So if you will, go back to chapter 2, verse 1. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. My son, if you will receive my words and treasure my commandments within you, make your ear attentive to wisdom, incline your heart to understanding. Go forward to chapter 3, verse 1. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. Turn to chapter uh, 4, verse 1. Hear, O sons, the instruction of a father, and give attention that you may gain understanding. Look at verse 3. When I was a son to my father, tender, and the only son in the sight of my mother, then he taught me and said to me, Let your heart hold fast my words. Keep my commandments and live. Acquire wisdom. Acquire understanding. Do not forget nor turn away from the words of my mouth. And then verse 20. Just to kind of get you to see, as, as Jason referred to in 1 John, a pattern of rhythm. That God is trying to get our attention on something through a rhythm of repetition. Verse 20. My son, give attention to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Do not let them depart from your sight. Keep them in the midst of your heart. For they are life to those who find them and health to all their body. Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. Put away from you a deceitful mouth and put devious speech far from you. Let your eyes look directly ahead and let your gaze be fixed straight in front of you. Watch the path of your feet and all your ways will be established. Do not turn to the right nor to the left. Turn your foot from evil. So what I have on the board there is, you know, the way I would summarize Proverbs 4 and how it uh, really encapsulates everything being said in Titus chapter 2, verse 6, 7, and 8, is that this is exhorting young men, you know, kind of this idea of my son, that particularly to a young man, even a boy, that we are to learn the value of watching what is being internalized into the heart and the impact of what is being kept in the heart. And I think with being sensible, this is one of the most important disciplines for a young person to develop, is an awareness of what is being internalized and the impact of the things that are being kept inside of the heart. So one of the more famous verses in the Bible, at least what I hear older people quote a lot that I've been around, verse 23, watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. Look back at verse 21. Do not let them depart from your sight. Keep them in the midst of your heart. 
So when I was younger, uh, I made no habit of learning to love God's word. Since my faith was extremely shallow, uh, I think I kind of considered the Bible just a teaching of good things or things I need to do, uh, just instructions for living. But the Bible is so much more than that. The Bible helps you know yourself and equips you to look within yourself in a way that nothing else can accomplish. For those of you who are here regularly, you may have heard me say that in the Gospels, the way that Jesus would interact with people, but especially his own disciples, he equipped them to become students of their own hearts. Jesus equipped his disciples to be students of their own hearts. Young people, one of the most important things they can learn, more important than learning any educational things, any work-related things, is learning to see greater value in personally investing in God's word. Not because God's word just just is going to tell them what to do with their life or how to behave themselves, but because it will cultivate within them a love for God, an understanding of who God is, and a proper understanding of self and how to keep and maintain a good and healthy heart. Verse 23, I look back and I can actually see how all the issues of my life and all the problems that I created for myself growing up were ultimately issues of the heart that I was not noticing, I was not addressing, and was deliberately even ignoring, and that Satan works to drown needed reflection and needed conviction with temporary pleasure and immediate, uh, immediate reward instead of learning self-control. So again, young men need to learn the wisdom of valuing God's word, the utility that it brings in knowing your heart and being able to look within to understand what is being internalized. Kind of to expound on that um, is Ecclesiastes 11. I'm debated teaching a lesson on this ne- next week. Uh, I'm still debating on that, even though we're talking about it a little bit. Um, what I'm going to say about it is, is fairly brief uh, in Ecclesiastes 11, 9, and 10. I think about this scripture all the time. And in terms of anything that the Bible says that... Um, has led me to look back on my teenage years and early adulthood um, and really regret uh, with more precision decisions I made, it's, it's this passage. Uh, so I hope to point out just some brief but very helpful things here. Ecclesiastes 11, 9. Rejoice, young man, during your childhood, and let your heart be pleasant during the days of young manhood, and follow the impulses of your heart and the desires of your eyes. Yet know that God will bring you to judgment for all these things. So, remove grief and anger from your heart and put away pain from your body because childhood and the prime of life are fleeting. Did you know that God wants us to live lives of joy? Did you know that that's one of God's greatest, highest ambitions with us is that we learn to have joy? Jesus said it in John's gospel in John 15, I say these things to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. In our Bible class this morning in 1 John 1 verse 4, John says the same thing. I've written these things to you that my joy, that our joy may be made complete. 
God wants us to live, live lives of joy. So verse 9, rejoice, young man, during your childhood. Now, the rest of that verse, this was more a problem with my view of God and just having, again, a very shallow, broken view of God. But when it says, let your heart be pleasant during the days of your young manhood, follow the impulses of your heart and the desires of your eyes, yet know that God will bring you to judgment for all these things. I used to read that like a bait and switch. You know, like, yeah, follow the desires of your heart, but God's going to get you. You know, you may think you're having a good time. It's going to catch up with you, and God's going to judge you for it. Uh, and I just want to say that that's, that's the wrong way to read this. Um, this is one of the risky verses where the Bible actually says, follow your heart, do whatever you want. But as kind of thematically is pulled together with Ecclesiastes, although God gives us great freedom, God seeks to give us joy, lasting, substantial joy in that freedom. Is it possible to have a joy that is not real? Or a joy, let's say, in a relationship, that although one person may be having what they think is joy, could that joy, the source of that joy, destroy that relationship? There are things that I can choose to enjoy that could destroy my relationship with Eva. So listen, a young man has the freedom to follow their heart, enjoy life. Just don't seek joy that destroys your relationship with God. Because if you think you're having joy doing things or investing in things that ultimately are putting your eternal life at risk, then the joy you're experiencing is ultimately vain and vanity. Because the only real joy is joy that is connected with God. Why has this made me regret things with my youth? It's because when I look back, here's how I saw God and joy. That joy and God were two entirely separate things. And that joy and fun could not be had in relation to God. And so it's as if my relationship to God and everything good, fun, enjoyable about life were actually enemy concepts with each other. And as I grew older, more and more, I was being pulled into this joy that was actually separated from God. Um, ah. So just to, to briefly ask here with this, what would be the end result of this? A young person deliberately pursuing a joy, knowing that God gives them freedom to do what they want, just keeping him in mind that his will is what brings us true joy. You can go to college, you cannot go to college. You can get different jobs, you can go to different places. You know, just remember the Lord in it all. Don't forsake him in the midst of your pursuits and be grateful. Develop a habit of deliberate personal gratitude. What is the end result? What is the outcome of those decisions? The outcome of disciplined thankfulness and a joy that is being directed to God, the outcome of that is willful sacrificial service. If somebody grows up having an attitude of thankfulness to God and realizing the freedoms that God gives them, that they're being delivered to rejoice in that and to enjoy that and know that God is giving that to them as a gift and they're looking back to God and being thankful to him, the end result of that momentum of thankfulness as that thankfulness matures over time, it is willful service. 
that I choose to serve the God I love. That the God who has given, 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 now I want to subject myself to his service. It cultivates the healthiest possible view of God. Someone growing up in a Christian household has the greatest opportunity to see God in the healthiest, most grounded way, where their feet are standing on solid ground, where they can endure trials and difficulties and maintain strength and integrity in their faith. So verse 10, remove grief and anger from your heart and put away pain from your body. Again, why has this made me look back with regret? I internalized all of the grief of my childhood, anger, frustration, hurt. I never realized who God is. That God is a God who heals the brokenhearted. And so instead of taking my hurt to the Lord, instead of being open with God and realizing how God can bear the burden of my struggles, where else then would I go? The world. And because I sought refuge in the world, my heart became so poisoned and tangled up that that became a very easy open door for a lack of self-control. I spent some time as an alcoholic, um, became very lazy, profane, destroyed every relationship that I could possibly have in my life that had any goodness to it at all. And it was all because I had poisoned my heart with all the things that God wants to give, all the things that God wants to do for me. Instead, I chose to seek those things in the world. So I want to ask you this in verse 10. How did you do in your youth putting away anger and grief and pain from your body? You're probably like me, where you grew up in your teenage years especially, being intensely emotional, being unstable, And again, although these are very vulnerable years, it's foundational that people in their youth learn that God is able to bear the burden of their emotional turmoil and can heal those things and help in those things. And again, the view of God that that creates um, is very rooted. I'll just say this. Since then, I have tried to see God as someone I'm able to emotionally connect to, as loony as that may sound. Um, And again, I think when you read the Psalms and you read about Jesus, Paul, the early church, Uh, These are people who saw God not just as a master demanding service, but as a person who could bear their burdens and heal uh, the hurts of their hearts. The rest of this is what Titus is told to be as an example. Again, I think this implies that Titus himself was also a young man. But I want to think for a second about the importance of an example. So again, Paul tells Titus that he is to be an example to young men Uh, in particular ways. So why are examples so important? I think something we can work out is there are a multitude of critical lessons, critical truths that cannot be communicated by teaching or by words. They can only be communicated and conveyed through example. Think about this with the way that God teaches. God hardly teaches any concept any principle, any command that is separated from some kind of example that illustrates it. Think about faith in Hebrews 11. There's a couple of statements that summarize what faith is, but the grand majority of that chapter, Hebrews 11 with by faith, by faith, by faith, the principle is illustrated through examples. Then we have people like David, the prophets, Daniel, 
We have negative examples in David in contrast to Saul, Cain versus Abel, Jesus, the Pharisees. Look at chapter 2 again of Titus. If you're not there, turn your Bibles there again. Uh, Look at Titus chapter 2, verse 11 again. For the grace of God has, what? Appeared to all men. God's grace has been manifested, illustrated through example. Look at chapter 3 similarly. Chapter 3, verse 4. But when the kindness of of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind, what? Appeared. God's love, his kindness, are not just things that are taught by word. They are illustrated in example. Jesus teaches us the importance of example. Just imagine being a Jew, someone like Peter or the other apostles. And you're familiar with the Old Testament scriptures. You're familiar with the instructions of the Old Testament. You're used to the Pharisees and other people like that in your culture who are the people who are admired religiously as the great examples of your day. And then you walk with Jesus. And you see Jesus taking God's instruction to a place you never imagined was possible before. Imagine people like Timothy, where after Jesus has lived his life and risen from the dead, ascended to heaven. Imagine being someone like Timothy, and you walk with the apostle Paul, and you see that Paul's example is a living manifestation of the things he is teaching. And that Paul's example itself takes that teaching to a more convicting place. And think about this. Have you ever been around someone, and I mean an older Christian, or maybe it was even a younger Christian, where just being around them was convicting? Because they were just so much more spiritually minded. They had this zeal that you recognize, I need to have a zeal like that. They have a creativity toward things like evangelism, a thoughtfulness toward evangelism, where you think, why can't I just think more like that? They have a way of loving people and investing people where you think, I can be more invested in people. There's something about examples that give a grounded reality to principles and concepts. There's something about an example that changes our expectations and our standards. There's something about an example that influences, that convicts, that motivates in ways that teaching cannot accomplish by itself. Young people need examples, not just from Titus or an evangelist. Young people need to see living proof that God's word is not just academic. It's not just this scribal scholarly exercise when we come together, but that faith is truly, completely transformative. And that grace is able to have the impact on us that we read about with the churches and people like the Apostle Paul, right? So Titus was told to be an example of good deeds. And with these things, I'll be fairly brief, uh, summarizing kind of some things about them. Titus was to be an example of good deeds, and I think how I would just urge this is, and and by the way, this is me speaking to myself. So Titus was told to be an example of these things, which I take as in, this is a charge to me. 
uh, first with these things. So this is a way that I am to be an example, but I think all of us can keep these things in mind. To be constant in sacrificing attention, time, and energy for the needs of others. To be constant in sacrificing attention, time, and energy to the needs of others. Uh, I'm going to point you to a couple of scriptures again here in Titus. Look at Titus 2 verse 14. In this kind of big statement about this grace of God that has appeared and what all should happen to us because of receiving this great grace that's been brought down. Look at the last statement at the end of verse 14. To purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. One thing, so that we would belong to God and be zealous for good deeds. Are you zealous for good deeds? Is that something you model? Is that illustrated in your example? Look at chapter 3, verse 8. As he similarly talks about this kindness of God that appeared and what that's done for us, verse 8. This is a trustworthy statement, and concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for all men. Look at verse 14. Our people must also learn to engage in good deeds, to meet pressing needs so that they will not be unfruitful. And again, Titus wasn't told to urge young men to do this, even though this instruction in Titus would apply to everybody. He is to illustrate this by his example. So I am, and by consequence, what we're all to be striving for is not just to academically think about God's word, not just believe the correct things about God and doctrine, but also to do the right things for each other. We need to give time, attention, and energy to the needs of others. This means maybe sacrificing things that are taking mental energy that are vain and useless, finding greater joy in focusing prayerfully on the brethren, on people around you, making more room in your time and in your energy to bring others in. Something even I talk a lot about, and I hope, I hope that this is helpful, we're limited. We need to grow. But what even I talk about is we can trust that when we have the right desire, that through prayer, God is able to broaden the capacity of our heart to love others. We talk about that all the time. Uh, and we try to recognize ways that God is doing that in our lives, where we see that God is broadening our heart's capacity to bring more people in, to give people more time, and to give people more attention. The reason why that's meant to be encouraging is we are limited, and we depend on God to help us grow in those qualities. It's not meant to be an automatic thing, but verse 14, we need to learn to engage in good deeds. This isn't just a light switch where you go from disengaged to doing it perfectly uh, there is a discipline to it of trust, trusting in God, giving the ability and giving the grace. Purity and doctrine. So chapter two again, uh, verse seven. Titus is told to be an example of purity and doctrine and dignified in the New American Standard in every other translation is directly connected to how doctrine is approached, meaning approach doctrine in a dignified way. With youth, there can be some challenges with purity and doctrine. It can be easy in youth uh, just to kind of have a resentful attitude toward maybe things that seem traditional 
or seem to not be very emotionally stimulating. Uh, and that can be dangerous. There can be a reactive attitude toward doctrine. And I know, uh, unfortunately, uh, many young preachers, I, I, know, I know more young preachers who are sound and I think are great examples, but I do know some young preachers who do have a nearly rebellious attitude uh, toward the generation before. And I mean brethren, young preachers. Um, it can be easy to have a sense of disdain where we've got it figured out now. You know, the past generation was too strict, didn't focus enough on love, too traditional, you know, bound things that shouldn't have been bound. And there just needs to be a great deal of caution uh, with those kinds of attitudes. Um, I view it as my generation stands on the shoulders of giants. And the generation before us, uh, we owe a lot to the fact that they took doctrine very seriously and paved the way for further study and uh, examining scriptures with a great deal of seriousness and integrity. So we need to be careful that we're not reactive, but that we're being careful to study and to believe and especially teach God's word, the truth of God's word, despite personal cost, despite personal feelings. You know, it doesn't matter what our culture practices. It doesn't matter, matter what other sound churches practice necessarily. It doesn't matter what we've practiced necessarily. It matters what the Bible says. It matters what God says we are to be and what we are to do, even if that means at times we've got to study a subject more to kind of figure out, are we doing this the right way? Is there some change we need to make? You know, do we need to see some kind of correction with how we're doing something? Is there a way we can grow in something we're doing? But with purity and doctrine and with it being dignified and holding integrity, turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. This is something that Timothy was, was told to do to demonstrate zeal, respect, and even joy being toward the relentlessly corrective nature of God's teaching. Uh, 2 Timothy 4, this is the most serious heavy charge ever given to anybody about anything in the New Testament. 2 Timothy 4, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. But you be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. So again, Timothy was told to adhere to a very serious-minded attitude toward the word of God. Even if that meant it wasn't popular, even if that means it contradicts everything we want, anything that feels good, the reality is sound doctrine, again, is relentlessly corrective in nature. And that really tests our view of God. Do we see correction from God's word, rebuke from God's word, exhortation from God's word as a good thing, as something to be embraced because it humbles us and helps us understand how we can be more godly rather than be more like the world? Or is it just wearisome? You know, is it just frustrating to be convicted? You know, is reading the Bible frustrating because it's like, ah, oh, there's all these things and Jesus lived such a perfect life and I just don't measure up. We have to learn to see grace behind correction and exhortation. And it being dignified, uh, somebody who behaves themselves with dignity 
has taken consideration to what they're doing, how that relates to doctrine, we have to give consideration to the doctrine of God. You know, we have to be studied. We've got to give it our attention. We've got to give it room in our mind. We can't just depend on a couple of people who are leading, seemingly, to do all the study, to ask all the hard questions, and everybody else just kind of follow their study and follow their conclusions. Everybody needs to learn to be, in whatever capacity you have, a personal good student of God's word and doctrine. And finally, being sound in speech. Um, And I'll be fairly simple with this one. If you'll turn to Proverbs chapter 10. Proverbs 10, 19 through 21. Uh, And I'm just summarizing this as being speaking in a way that is kind, considerate, and encouraging. And I'll read these three verses from Proverbs. And we'll finish the lesson with just some brief thoughts about this. Proverbs 10, 19. When there are many words, transgression is unavoidable. But he who restrains his lips is wise. The tongue of the righteous is as choice silver. The heart of the wicked is worth little. The lips of the righteous feed many, but fools die for lack of understanding. The most consistent subject tackled in the Proverbs from chapter 10 forward is words, how people people ought to talk and communicate, And I think these three verses summarize most of those principles. In verse 19, it's easy to get carried away with what we say. It's so critical that in our younger years, we learn self-control to guard our words and not just let fun and good social time, uh, not even environments where others around us may be laughing about something or potentially gossiping about someone, to have the self-control to not get carried away into it. Uh, Verse 20, a righteous person has a heart that helps the words that come from the mouth be more valuable and substantial. Jesus would teach, the mouth speaks that which fills the heart. The key thing of verse 20, the tongue of the righteous. This is somebody who their heart is righteous. They are not just shallow, outwardly serving God but their heart is in the right place. Uh, The contrast then in verse 20, the heart of the wicked is worth little. Verse 21, the lips of the righteous feed many. Our words have an impact. People generally, and I don't mean this in a mean way, I think it's just a general truth. Uh, People generally are are hard-hearted. And oftentimes because of that, we can lose touch with how hurtful things can be that we say. Uh, how damaging it can be, how it can hurt someone in a way that they may not communicate, um, not wanting to make things awkward. But words have value beyond just being nice to hear. Um, They can potentially help someone very substantially or they can hurt someone substantially. And it requires a great deal of wisdom to respect just how important words are and how important it is to guard our mouths and watch what we say. Uh, Godly wisdom demands that we respect that discipline and the value of sound speech. That's the lesson. Uh, I hope that that was encouraging, helpful, and even challenging. Uh, These are things that um, I just recognize I need to do so much better to apply. Uh, And for this lesson, um, I appreciate your patience in listening, but I would like to lead a prayer.